Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. I'm Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by my old friend, Dr. Paul Clifford. He is currently non-resident fellow at the Kennedy School at Harvard University and has just come out with a wonderful book called The China Paradox uh, at the front line of economic transformation. And I say it's wonderful because it really combines both a macro view with a view on the ground and allows all readers to kind of have a firsthand view of what is going on in China. And then today when there's lots of smoke and not much light, this book really sheds lots of light um, on the subject of China's economic transformation and brings it up till today, which I think is very valuable. Um, Paul, welcome. It's great to see you. Uh, first, because you have had such an extraordinarily, I have a long history in China, but not as long as yours. You actually were there when I was still a student. Can you just give us a flavor of why, uh, really, in the during the Cultural Revolution, you were in China? Yeah, uh, first, Steve, thanks for having me on. It's a great pleasure. Um, well, uh, I, I started out as an academic and then moved into business. And uh, uh, I originally was uh, doing uh, Chinese classics and modern uh, language at, L at London University and did a PhD in modern history. Um, the, 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 the turning point in my studies, if you like, was when I, when Britain normalized relations with China in 1973 in the spring. And that autumn, literally that autumn, um, I was uh, off to China as a British exchange student eventually ending up at Peking University. Um, so it was a very exciting time. And it, it not only made me, help me learn Chinese really properly, but put, put me in, into Chinese society in a way that I couldn't have otherwise. And I have a very soft spot for, for Chinese people and culture. And it was an absolutely delightful year, which really changed my mind in many ways many ways. Uh, also, I saw, you know, the hardships and, and the cruelty of the Cultural Revolution. So uh, it was a very important period. Uh, after that, you know, I, I went into business after teaching for a while at universities. And um, you know, I went through uh, as a corporate banker, then doing strategy consulting, helping Chinese companies and foreign companies in China. Uh, and, and then eventually with a US uh, technology firm doing strategy on smart cities. Uh, including um, healthcare networks in Sichuan after the earthquake. So, um, you know, I've had a long history in China and, uh, you know, it's very close to my heart, um, but I do hope I can be objective as well as uh, committed. I think the book is incredibly balanced and it does kind of benefit from your on the ground experience. So rather than being simply a macro analysis, it really is on the ground. You call it the China paradox. Yeah. Tell me why you call it the China paradox. Yeah, um, it's the China paradox is my read of China's last 40 years of development. You know, the hybrid model that China has developed. Um, uh, it, it's important to look back to the first 30 years of the PRC or the People's Republic to understand you know, why, why this all came about. Um, 
you know, the first 30 years uh, had its strong points, building an industrial base, uh, health healthcare, women's rights, all sorts of good things. But it really was disastrously, uh, disastrous in the economic sense. And um, so by 1978, when um, Deng Xiaoping regained power, um, China was ready for change. And the, the paradox is really the extraordinary fact that uh, the Communist Party came to embrace market forces, private entrepreneurialism, um, and generally um, taking on board, um, you know, a lot of uh, capitalist methods. Um, that is the paradox. The paradox was really driven by the Communist Party because they, they wanted so much to stay in power and have stayed in power, largely by um, creating an economy that can satisfy people's needs. So it was a compromise, it was a, a delicately balanced sort of um, model where um, you know, the, the, the party had a relatively light hand uh, and business was allowed to flourish. Um, what, what I've looked at in this um, new edition is whether that, um, that China paradox, that delicate mechanism, if you like, uh, is, um, is under threat or unraveling. Uh, are they continuing the reforms or, or discontinuing them? Are they declaring victory or not? So the paradox being the authoritarianism versus right. the light hand to allow for the economic development Absolutely. that started in, in 1978. Right. And, so and, the initial book came out five years ago. You know, mm. you have this revised edition is coming out now. That's a pretty short period of time between the initial book and the second edition? Um, is that because it was such a hot seller? Or is that because you think things changed? Um, I think a lot of the conclusions uh, I drew in the first edition ha have uh, stayed uh, correct and have, you know, have been a reasonably good forecast of what will come. But there has been a, an amazing uh, shift in, in China. Um, you know, after Hu Jintao, um, Hu Jintao's um, reign, if you like, uh, when Xi Jinping came in, uh, Ch China's it was really in the doldrums. You know, its, it's, it's uh, sales were flapping. Um, it was it lost, it lost its um, sort of magic uh, essence of, you know, of, of drive, uh, of, of innovation. Um, and under Xi Jinping, you have to concede and, you know, that China has really made great progress in pushing forward in many technology areas and in um, you know, sprucing up the economy uh, and dealing with corruption. These are all positive things. Um, the other thing that's happened is that um, the party and Xi Jinping have decided that they want a stronger uh, hand in government and in enterprises and have come back with a vengeance really across the economy and across society. And, um, those two things, really, the way they have combated, um, you know, liberal ideas, pushed back against civil society, the way they have uh, actually advanced technology have all led to a, if you like, a concern across the world that, um, that China is, is now not only strong, but a threat. And that has caused a lot of concern and anxiety and a pushback from the West. So the, the, the things that have happened in China have provoked a very serious reaction. And I felt I needed to talk about that and understand it 
more deeply. And that's really where I've come out in the extra two chapters, uh, looking at Huawei and looking at uh, the frictions with the world. Are you, you know, you talk about concern in the West. Are you concerned? In other words, is this concern justified? Um, I, I think, first of all, that China um, has made a mistake of becoming much more assertive and talking about its ambitions, its goals, which have not necessarily been achieved or may not be achieved. Um, a lot of it's aspirational, but that has caused grave concern in the world. I think we do have to be concerned about China. It's a rising power. Uh, at the moment, I don't see any sign that he wants to, to, to if you like, topple America as the, the top dog. Um, I, I think that uh, China is still rising um, and um, that rise is legitimate and needs to be tolerated. That said, um, the, the human rights abuses and other aspects of China's rise uh, need to be pushed back against. And uh, I, I feel um, that, we, that that is part of what I would call my nuanced position, that we need to push back where necessary, but continue to collaborate with China. So I, I don't think China is an enemy. I think China is not a threat. I think it is a severe competitor in many ways. And if you like the anxiety in the United States and elsewhere over China's rise has been provoked, not because China's doing its endless catch up, which is not always very successful, but actually because it's innovating itself. I think that's, that's a, you know, a very serious issue. You have one of the updates parts of the book are about Anne Financial and Alibaba. It's really, you give a, I think, one of the clearest descriptions of what went on in the withdrawal of the Ant Financial IPO. Um, are you pretty confident that what you're kind of saying is right? You talk about a Xi Jinping decision. You talk about this, what may be an apocryphal story about Jack Ma returning to Hangzhou after he'd shaken hands with Xi Jinping and, and he said, Xi Jinping didn't look me in the eye. We've got trouble. Yeah. Really? <laughs> well, um, uh, I believe the witnesses that I talked to, you know, are credible. Um, it is secondhand, of course, but I think it fits the, the, the narrative um, uh, uh, of the story, um, which is unfolding. Um, the, 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 what I would say about Xi Jinping is that while he's very powerful, he, he's not an emperor or a czar or anything like that. Uh, he is part of a collective leadership, which still is there and can dictate when, when, as necessary. But I think he is driving a lot of the economic decisions and political decisions himself. And I think he's concentrating the power much more in his own hands. Um, you know, Alibaba, um, I think is part of a broader trend. And it's not just uh, about you know, Jack Ma uh, dissing the Chinese leadership like, a, like an insolent kid. <laughs> that, that is not, it's, it's a multifaceted uh, um, situation. Um, I mean, there are maybe three things. One is, um, you know, and um, the financial arm of Alibaba was largely unregulated and it's essentially like a bank and uh, the government quite legitimately wants to, you know, uh, rein in the uh, groups that are not properly looked after or watched over. Um, the other thing is um, uh, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party wants to be very 
much in control of the commanding heights of the economy. And um, this, the, the e-commerce platforms, as we know, the, the Alibaba, the, um, you know, the, the Tencent, they are, I would say, have largely been outside the sphere of government. Although I would say when I visited Alibaba, they were mouthing a lot of Xi Jinping thought, but I still feel they were not controlled or um, under the umbrella of the government. I think also the government would like to um, do a lot of the payments over, you know, actually um, control some of those payments over and, and gain information from both sides on that transaction. So I think there is a, a, a desire to um, control those uh, aspects. But the other, the third point really is that, that um, um, these large companies with massive um, IPOs offshore and massive wealth offshore um, represent a possible, just possible um, alter, uh, alternate um, power base um, separate from the Communist Party. And the Communist Party has always whacked whatever group that stands in, in the way of their full control, whether it's a religious group or whatever. And I think that, that, that this aspect also plays a part. And then perhaps finally, um, I think China in a way feels that the private sector has succeeded very largely in propping up the, the transition while the state-owned sector was, was fixed and mended. Um, and, uh, but, but now um, that the, they can almost declare victory, if you like, in, the, in those reforms and that the private sector can be brought more under the control of the party and the state. Um, I think that's a mistake, but um, I think that the, what happened to Alibaba is part of a bigger picture. Uh, I may be proven wrong, of course, but I, I sense and I believe that this is a, a long-term trend towards um, the private sector converging with the state sector more, okay? Yeah, the book correctly points out in the latter part that there's a conflict ultimately between this focus on state-owned enterprises and you talk about the return on investment and various other aspects of SOEs versus the private sector. And the book correctly notes that it's the private sector that has been the driver of growth in China's economy yeah. and if, there is a permanent shift in this, then there's gonna be a conflict between the Chinese Communist Party's goals and the ability to maintain economic growth. So, and I think that's, I think that's right. I guess where I slightly differ, and this is interesting because you're one of the few people who've been in China longer than I, um, <laughs> I always see Chinese policy as a pendulum. It swings too far to one side and then swings too back. And it's both yeah. political and economic. You know, I've lived, yeah, I lived through democracy wall. I lived through Tiananmen. I've lived through, you know, Jing Shen Wu on the, the spiritual pollution. I've lived through a lot of, of, of pendulum swings. And ultimately, it swings back for a variety of reasons. Do you think this is permanent? Or do you think, and if something has changed, are we just in the process of another pendulum swing? Um, it's a great question, and um, I am fully aware, and I totally agree with you that um, over the years uh, China has um, experimented, uh, uh, tightening up and then relaxing. And this is a you know a characteristic of all economies, of course, but uh, particularly China, which is you know policy driven from the top, and uh, uh, and they make changes and then they adjust uh, and quite cleverly. Um, I I think. 
um, there is something perhaps um, deeper than that going on, which is the, the role of the state sector. And I, I mentioned before um, that uh, the state sector was put together, repaired, uh, some were sold off, but basically they were, they were put on a sound footing. And um, today I sense that the party uh, knows that, well, they, they must know that the, the private sector uh, is more profitable, creates more jobs. It's, it's the driver of, of, of the economy in a sense, um, but they would like to have their cake and eat it. They would like to um, maintain uh, the, the, the semi-autonomy of the private sector. And it is semi-autonomy. I mean, that's the difference between, you know, um, Huawei and uh, private and state-owned companies. They're allowed a day-to-day -day autonomy, which allows them to succeed more. Um, but I do think that the, the, the party has decided that, um, and this may be, if you like, an unraveling of the, the China paradox, that the, the, the mixed economy is, uh, has run its course and that the, the state um, and the party uh, need to be um, more dominant. Um, because in a way, for China to call itself socialist, it needs to have some, you know, social assets or so assets in the, in, at the state level, and also the role of the party. I mean, without having to look after the state sector, um, you know, that you take away one of the major raison d'etre of, of the party itself. So I think that they they uh, are very inclined to clamp down on private enterprise for the reasons I gave, multiple reasons. Um, and we'll try to um, uh, bring them more under the orbit of, of the state and the party. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It's an interesting view. It's not one I, I totally agree with, but it is certainly an interesting and informed view. Uh, talk about, you know, you, you talk about Wandai, HNA, Anbang, Fortune um, versus kind of you know, which got completely closed down versus kind of the Titan regulation of Ali, Tencent, and some of the other big tech platforms. What does that mean for kind of businesses in China? Yeah, um, I, I do think the the e-commerce platforms are radically different from the the HNAs and the Anbangs of this world, and Fosun and the others. Um, I think the, the 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 reasons I gave for I gave you the reasons why I think uh, the, the the party state is going after uh, the Alibaba and other entities, um, I, and and that is to do with you know their strength, and and they're incredibly well run I would say compared to some other companies in China. I mean they are they are world class companies, but I always tell people you know e even if you're a world class a company like Alibaba. Um, the, the key risk, the, the, the really big risk, is your relationship with the government and the party. <laughs> and we, that, I mean, that's been proven in, in, in spades, I think, recently. Yeah. Um, but the other ones, um, they, they represent a very different um, class of private or semi-private. First of all, you know, they, they were, they have proven to be rather corrupt, um, HNA, uh, and also Ambang, you know, they, they, they've, they've suffered, the, the leaders have been arrested and um, they've basically been bankrupted or taken over by, by the state. Um, the other ones, you know, like one, you know, Wanda and uh, Fosun, I mean, their leaders, you know, Wang Zhenlin and others 
Uh, they're, they're still fine, but the government has said, we do not want you pouring money out of the country. Um, capital flight is a really big issue for the government and has been and continues to be. And so what they've said is that the state banks will no longer support you and you have to cut back and, you know, you know, Fosun bought Club Med <laughs> and, 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 and other, other assets have been acquired overseas. And I think the, the government trying to make them more domestic and to trim, their, uh, tr trim them down so that they are more domestically oriented. And so, the, you know, those, those large um, conglomerates, if you like, are very different from the e-commerce platforms. Um, and, uh, you know, are suffering, you know, are suffering from, you know, undigested acquisitions all over the world and uh, do, you know, have taken a lot of money out of China, which could have been spent in China. Your chapter on Huawei is really very informative. Um, is it fair to say you think to some degree Huawei is getting a bum rap? And is it, what do you think the US government policy towards Huawei should be? Well, it's quite a sensitive question, um, but a good one. Um, we, we need to address it. I've got a whole chapter on it. And, uh, you know, I look, you know, I, I, I've known Huawei for a long time. You know, I once consulted to them uh, as an American, with an American firm. Um, I then competed against them when I was with a US technology firm. Um, I, I know them quite well. Um, I, I, I think that we, we need to be vigilant about buying their, their 5G gear. I, I think that the idea of a country as autocratic and as China, you know, supplying us with our telecommunications gear is, is risky and we need to be very, very careful. Um, you know, the US was caught without any comparable technology and is buying, obviously buying Swedish and Finnish now. Um, so I, I think that it's quite legitimate to take take a stand on that and each country has to decide right uh, um, but what I feel is that the the extent to which the, the the US has gone after Huawei in a total way across the board and Huawei looks a, lo a lot like Motorola did in the in the 90s actually um, you know with assets right across the the value chain um, and of course in in handset mobile handsets and you know I don't believe that mobile handsets, um, are a strategic threat to any of anybody. I think they're, they're bits of gear that, you know, which um, should be on sale and were on sale in the US. They're still on sale in Europe. Um, and I think that going after Huawei across the board is, you know, almost, um, almost like an act of aggression, if you like. Interestingly, China has been very patient about this, I believe, um, but obviously has quite a bit of clout because, you know, of uh, the, the presence of U.S. firms in, in the country. So I, I would I would not, I, I've talked about this endlessly, I think, over the last few years. I don't think we should demonize Huawei. I think we should uh, be very vigilant about them as a tool of the Chinese government. They are clearly, uh, you know, very close to the Chinese government. Um, um, but, you know, I think if we go down the road of excluding a, a major company of that type from any sort of business, I think that's extremely uh, um, a, a rather dangerous path to go down, which, which I think leads to technology war um, of sorts, which we have, you know, cutting off, um, cutting off semiconductors for all sorts of products. I think that is not, not, not intelligent or strategically necessary. And also, I would add, US companies do not want that, absolutely do not want that. 
Um, so um, I, I think that we will see a, a more moderate um, position on some of these aspects. I certainly hope so. Yeah, we're certainly, I would say we're not going down that road. We've gone down that road. I mean, you know, the entity list and various- Yeah, absolutely. Having yeah, to apply for anything to be sold to Huawei is really incredibly onerous. And we're, it's costing US companies in excess of billions and billions of dollars. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. What would you, you know, in your kind of consulting role, so you have great kind of descriptions, but as you mentioned of, of Motorola, of the Westinghouse deal, uh, you don't talk about Starbucks or, or mm -hmm. well, you mention Apple, but you know, companies that have really succeeded. What, what do you tell MNCs today in this environment? Um, well, I, I think that the one thing I've been telling companies um, pretty well <laughs> over most of my career in China is that you, you need to align you know, with, with what China's doing but if you go in there purely aligning with what they want, they won't get what they need and you won't get what you need. <laughs> what you need to go in is with your strategy and um, see if it can fit what China is looking to do. Because you need to be clear about your strategy and not get too diverted from it. Um, and I think that's what Motorola did. Um, at that time, in the, in the late 80s and the 90s, um, most companies similar to Motorola were going into China in joint ventures, and you know I was on the I was on the Motorola uh, team as a consultant, and you know we looked at all the semiconductor firms that were around, and none of them could bring anything to the table other than um, land and buildings and maybe a bit, a bit of cash, and so you know Bob Galvin, who was the head of you know of Motorola then, said clearly we do not want to do a joint venture. Also. To protect the technology, because they they obviously they could, they had encrypted um, communications, but with a joint venture is much more difficult, right? Um, and uh, the, the Chinese side actually embraced it because they knew that uh, uh, wholly owned foreign enterprises were more efficient uh, and productive than joint ventures overall, and that's become the way most people go in today. So, um, um, but at, what I would say today is that. Um, the Chinese companies want a lot of firms into China and uh, they want foreign firms to come in, partly because it, it demonstrates that uh, the market is open when it's not really very open. They, you know, they, can, they can point to that and say that it's open. Um, it also helps China. Um, China still lives in the hope that it can suck out technology. Uh, skills, you know, people go from technology, foreign technology firms to Huawei all the time, and that, that's a, a benefit, you know, to them. Um, and uh, and also, I think China really does need connections with the world. It needs foreign technology still. So I I I think uh, that the foreign firms should recognize that, that, well, they will recognize, they do know that China is still a very large domestic market. It's, you know, urbanization is only just a bit above 50%, it's gonna to go to 70%. Um, that means a lot of market opportunity. But what I would say is that given the pace of China's catch up and it's, you know, it's sort of semi-open policy, um, the door is just open a little bit. Um, the, any relationship you have uh, particularly in joint ventures, is going to be very short term, and you shouldn't expect to be there long, long term. 
but I think there's still opportunities to, uh, to be had and money to be made if you can just be, you know, be cautious about uh, your technology and the people you work with. Yeah. If you stand on a street corner in Tokyo and you stand on a street corner in Shanghai, which market seems more open? That's an easy question. The answer is, is Shanghai. You know, the, the General yeah. Motors, the largest selling car. I mean, it's, it's you know, the Starbucks on every corner, the, you know, the everybody walking around with an Apple phone. I don't buy this, you know, yes, it's closed in certain areas, but it yeah. is significantly an open market. I think we need to be careful how we talk about that narrative. Yeah, I, I, I think that um, it, 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 it's hard to generalize about China all the time. You know, <laughs> um, you know in certain areas, um, you're going to be watched and, and, and growled and, and, and um, pushed around all the time. I mean, look, you know, Koreans bringing in a battery technology had a wretched time, you know, with deals where they were thought they had a deal and then it was changed and they had to bring in more technology and more just to, you know, to make the factory work. So um, I, I think, um, I, I just think that the, the, the idea that the, the open door is there is only, you know, only partly true, but you're absolutely right. You can do business in many, many sectors wide open. And the Chinese, I think, have shown a great deal of um, openness to foreign ideas and to foreign investment and to foreign brands. And very early on, they re recognized that um, bringing in McDonald's, who I worked with quite a lot in China uh, in the early days, was actually beneficial to, 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 to China in, in driving clean, you know, creating clean, clean restaurants um, and uh, you know, creating opportunities for other Chinese firms to imitate them. Um, so, and driving up the quality of Chinese uh, you know, society in some ways. Um, so I, I think China is, you know, is open to foreign ideas. They're even open to uh, foreign transportation companies um, and companies running their water, their, the water treatment plants. Um, and part of that is because, you know, having a foreign company there doing it means if anything goes wrong, you can blame the foreign company, of course. But they, they do allow, you know, a lot of foreign uh, uh, activity. And um, so, um, but I, I do, do still believe um, in, in certain key areas. First of all, some are completely closed, right? We know that, um, publishing and things like that. But um, in other areas, they're very carefully controlled. And I think the key is to you know, understand, find um, people at the local level, at city or, or provincial level, who want to support your case, and, and then you know work with them um, uh, up to the, you know, the, the upper echelons of the party. So I, I think it can be done, but um, um, uh, you know China is much better organized than people ever imagined. China is well organized and well, you know, in their negotiations, they see, always seem to be. Uh, better informed and more, more, you know, more on top of things than sometimes the foreign side. That's my many more questions that I want to ask, but I want to just encourage people to buy the book so they they won't have to. We won't have to go on for hours. But let me just close with with one question, um, which is, in my view, a paradox, a different paradox. But you're very skeptical about. Kind of continuing economic reform. I think you say in the unlikely event the Chinese Communist Party embraces further deeper 
deeper economic reform. So obviously suggesting you're pretty skeptical that this is gonna happen. So, but what I've been looking at recently is China's application to the uh, CPTPP, the, you know, the, the new form of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, you know, China's application to join the Digital Economy Partnership, um, yep. opening to financial services firms for me, you know, we've waited many years, but finally yep. they're allowing for wholly owned financial services firms in the insurance area, the investment banking area, the banking area. Isn't it a paradox with kind of not thinking that economic reform is still to some degree going on? Um, Steve, you're absolutely right um, about the, the implications of China's you know, joining those, those groups. Um, I think that, first of all, China's scale and um, negotiating power may mean that they will have to concede less than other people might. <laughs> so, um, and I do believe China is perfectly capable of opening up sectors. Um, many sectors were kept closed early on just because, just because um, Chinese companies weren't ready to take on the competition. I, I think today China is much more ready to take on competition and will open up further in those areas. Is, is that part of reform? Yes, it is. I think China wants to be part of those groups you mentioned because it's central to their Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah? But, and you know, the, the, the digital economy group um, is, is partly Chile. Now, you know, the Belt and Road extends down to Chile, believe it or not. Um, so I think it's aligned with China's um, foreign, you know, foreign investment and trade goals. And what is interesting is that even though China is hunkering down with its you know, domestic circulation idea, you know, emphasizing self-reliance, self but not in a Maoist sense. Um, I do think long-term, it still wants to be part of the global economy, needs to be, and wants to contribute to it. And so uh, my, you know, my, my feeling is that um, these things are very positive and we should encourage it. And you know, even with the Chinese leadership, there are different views, but I do see China you know, working hard in the world and I would like to see us collaborating more, not less. I mean, they're in a, they may be an adversary, but they're also, uh, we can cooperate with them and they're a competitor. So I think that those, you know, if we can create uh, sort of buckets of action around those different aspects, then we will avoid just one hard, you know, hard uh, policy that drives China into its cocoon. And that would be horrible and dangerous for the world. Yeah. I, I was speaking with a senior Chinese economic official, and I think I used the word Zili Gangsheng, and I was quickly corrected. He said, that is not our policy. It is dual circulation. So we, yes. we this is a domestic and an international strategy. Absolutely. The, to show you how much, I mean, it's such a wise book. It's such a balanced book. And I, I love the, you know, the final paragraph in it, which is kind of the way I, I think about China. But let me just read just two sentences of it, because it just shows the wisdom of the author. Um, I'm still mindful of how little say we have in the outcome in China. The Chinese people will determine their na nation's destiny, which I think is, is so true that we can affect it on the margins. We continue to, to kind of sit and, and propose our alternatives for the Chinese leadership. But obviously 
it's they who are going to determine what it is. So any words to close? Otherwise, I'll just show the book again. Well, I just want to thank you and, and the committee for, for, for hosting me today. It's a great pleasure. Um, I, I just want to contribute to you know, better understanding between our countries, between US and China, and, and hopefully influence some people you know, to think more creatively about how we can engage with China, whether it's in environmental protection or you know, biotech or whatever. I think there's vast room for collaboration. And I would like to see the, you know, the, 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 the Obama sort of collaboration partnership brought back on a grand scale, but still being vigilant of China's new assertiveness, which is of course uh, of concern. Paul, thank you so much for writing the book for updating the book so so quickly. It's The China, Par the China Paradox. Uh, it's an absolute must read. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.